Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Civics Podcast, where we explore how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And for this episode, we're giving you a sample of some of the work we do with churches, schools, and ministries around the country. My favorite part of our work is our longer workshops, where we get to spend three to four hours with a group of people, really digging deep into how to let our faith shape the way we think about government, without just resorting to the easy and, let's be honest, the broken culture war approach. These workshops are typically pretty hands-on. If you get the chance to attend one, you're going to spend as much time in conversation and prayer with other people as you do sitting and hearing teaching. But it's pretty hard to turn a room full of small group conversations into audio that's actually usable for a podcast. So, for today, we're just going to focus on the teaching part. We're going to string together some excerpts from the first half hour of one of our workshops. Specifically, these excerpts are going to help us start to think about context when we look at the Bible for civic guidance. So, let's jump right in. We're going to start by putting together broad sketches of the kinds of governments that existed in biblical times. Then, we're going to look at the kinds of relationships to government that the original biblical audiences could have. Uh, The Bible is written to a bunch of different audiences. None of them had the right to vote. So the Bible does not give clear, direct prescription about how to vote which is why it is so hard for Christians to, free, to talk about politics. It's why you have organizations on the left and on the right both yelling at each other, claiming that uh, if you're a Christian, you obviously have to vote the way they vote. Uh, it's easy to assert things like that in the absence of any other prevailing direction from scripture. Um, so I had mentioned that there are a few audiences the Bible was written to. I'm gonna just take a few minutes to talk about the three main political audiences in the Bible. Um, I'm not gonna cover Abraham or Egypt. That's uh, mainly because we have a limited amount of time. So I'm gonna start with Israel. Uh, So that's after the calling of Abraham, after the exile to Egypt, after the kind of mostly clearing of the Holy Land, they established Israel. This was an agrarian, pre-industrial, pre-Christian, Yahwehistic theocracy. Yahwehistic, uh, Yahweh is, anytime in the Old Testament you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that actually stands for the Hebrew word Yahweh. Uh, That's the proper name of God. Like, um, If anyone here is a teacher, when you're in the classroom, people call you teacher. When you're home, they call you Bob, if your name is Bob. Um, God is akin to the word teacher. Yahweh would be akin to the name Bob. And because of the Hebrew tradition of not taking the Lord's name in vain, um, they tried to be, the ancient scribes were very careful about that and just wrote Lord instead of Yahweh. Um, And it's signified by all capital letters. So when you see Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, think Bob. Um, 
So it was a theocracy dedicated to the creator God of heaven and earth. Um, theocracy means you know, there was one ruler, their appointed officials and their subjects and the laws that the ruler established and the whole system of government was built around the tenets of their religion. After Israel, a lot of the Old Testament was written to Jews living in Babylon and Persia. In this case, again, it was a non-Yahwehistic theocratic empire where Jews were the targets of a campaign of cultural and religious assimilation. So their faith was not tolerated. That's where in the, like, the book of Daniel, you get all of these schemes to kind of demonize and otherize uh, his practice of Judaism. And he frequently kind of was in some legal gray areas for the practice of his faith. And then it was written to Christians living under Rome, which as Kelly was talking about earlier, at the time uh, that the new a lot of Paul's letters were being written, they were going towards, and eventually by the end of the writing of the New Testament, were in a period where they were an openly persecuted minority in a pluralist society. So Rome was allowed a lot of different religions and cultures to flourish, but Christianity was not tolerated. Um, in these kinds of environments, there were generally three political roles you could be in. You could be a monarch. Uh, this was exceedingly rare. Uh, so this is you know, the emperor of Rome or Caesar. There was Pharaoh. There was the king of Israel, uh, Saul, etc. The judges are in a, in a more complicated gray area that we're not going to get into. Monarchs had the power to set the direction of policy single-handedly or even single-wordedly. Um, they usually didn't execute that policy themselves. They had vast networks of people working under them um, who executed that for them. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, and there was only ever one monarch at a time, so the direction of policy and government was usually pretty coherent and pretty single-minded. If you weren't a monarch, you could a little bit less rarely be an appointed official. So these were like the governors in Rome, the uh, tribal heads in Israel or the judges, the various um, network of seers and viziers and Chaldeans in um, Persia and in Babylon. And appointees, these are people like um, characters in scripture like Joseph, Nehemiah, Daniel, even to a degree Esther, Pontius Pilate. They had tremendous and relatively rare influence over the way government policy worked and was actually executed on the ground. Um, they could also, the lower level they were, the less oversight they typically operated with. So if you were a higher level appointee, you were usually pretty accountable to the king or the monarch or pharaoh. If you were a lower level appointee, there was a little bit more room to abuse your power and abuse your privilege, hence, uh, that's why everyone in ancient Rome hated the taxpayer, the tax collectors, because they were pretty unaccountable and frequently could just act as um, racketeers. And then there were subjects. They had no authority, no agency. Um, they were, their well-being was completely and totally at the whim of 
their monarchs and their appointed officials. Good government meant that they flourished. Bad government meant that they suffered. And when I say good and bad, I mean morally good government executed well and morally poor government executed well or either form of government executed poorly. So if you were a subject, you were hoping beyond hope for a good monarch and good elected officials who actually knew what they were doing. Because if either they were bad or they were incompetent or both, your life was going to be miserable. Uh, now, we don't have exactly those roles in the US today. We have elected officials, and we have citizens who have the power of the vote, who have freedom to actually participate, not just in government projects, but um, a whole network of NGOs and nonprofits that also help shape our civil society. All right, we're going to pause there for a moment and skip ahead about 10 or 15 minutes. The stuff that we're skipping over is a couple small group and large group discussions talking about the various specific responsibilities that monarchs and appointed officials and subjects had in biblical times and about who carries which of those specific responsibilities today in the United States. It's actually really interesting and a lot of fun and I think really empowering. But we're going to jump back in with the teaching portion as we start looking at what it means for a Christian to have the kinds of responsibilities that U.S. citizens have today. The political context that we're living in is different from the political context of a lot of the biblical audiences. It's uh, takes a lot of the defined political roles of the ancient Near East and kind of chops them up into little bits and scatters them to a bunch of different groups of people. Uh, it's jumbled around uh, power, authority, privilege that cleanly and entirely rested with one group or class of people or one person are dispersed among different groups of people to different degrees now. This is not necessarily a better thing, and it is not necessarily a worse thing. Um, having kind of grown up in this system, I think it's way better, but strong arguments could probably be made otherwise. Um, the whole point that I want us to come to is that better or worse, it is a thing. <laughs> it is a fact of the time and the place God has carried us into. Um, and attempts to engage the public life of the community around you uh, as though it were the public life of Rome or as though it were the public life of Israel or as though it were the public life of Babylon or Persia um, are, I would argue, uh, spiritually unsound. Um, I would say even that they would demonstrate attempts to treat the politics of the U.S. as though it were the politics of any biblical era is a resentment of the mission field that God has carried you into. Uh, he puts, he could have very easily brought you to life in some other time, in some other place, or ordered your life so that you wouldn't be here now. He did not. He ordered your life so that you would be in North America with all of 
the responsibilities, all of the privileges, all of the burdens, and all of the frustrations that come with being here. So what are we supposed to do with that? It is important for us, if we're trying to figure out how we behave as Christians in this time and place, to think about how we behave as Christians holistically, to think about every dimension of life. You have this dimension of your life that did not exist for most of the Christians who have ever lived. Most of the church has not lived with the privileges and responsibilities of citizenship, but God has chosen to give you those privileges and responsibilities in this time, in this place, in this country. So you should, like with everything in your life, be thinking about how you use these privileges and responsibilities as a tool for mission. Every Christian in every time and every place throughout history has been charged with making the gospel seen and felt and understood by the people around them. Uh, it's uh, what Jesus called being salt to the earth or being a lamp on a stand. Hence, our delightful little logo, a lamp on a stand in front of a Capitol dome. Uh, we have to work out together what it means to witness for Christ within the responsibilities and privileges and burdens of citizenship. Uh, so all of these roles that were clearly defined in the Old Testament are not clearly defined for us. We don't have to sacrifice a lot right now for our faith living in the U.S. Um, we you know, need to remain celibate far beyond the age we're biologically designed for that. But aside from that, the only other real burden and responsibility um, and sacrifice we're called, I think, to make for our faith living in this time and place is figuring out how to missionally take up these responsibilities that there's no direct uh, instruction for in the Bible. Uh, it's a huge sign of trust in you that God has given you this really weird, really, and when I say weird, I mean in the grand scope of human history, it is really weird to have the kind of access to government and governmental operations and decisions that U.S. citizens have, especially for a government as big and powerful as the U.S. one is. Uh, if you walk away with only one idea sticking in your mind from this talk today, it is that God has given you a massive responsibility in placing you in a time and place where you have to figure out what to do with citizenship. That's why I keep repeating it over and over again. Your citizenship and the way you execute it is actually part of your Christian discipleship because Christian discipleship covers every dimension of life. So what are the ways in which we can demonstrate how people who believe in the gospel handle citizenship differently from people who don't? And the first thing I would argue that the gospel Okay, that's as good a place as any to stick a pin in this. In just a moment, we're going to take what we just heard and translate it into prayer together. But first, a few quick notes. If you want to go deeper into some of the ideas in that talk, or if you want to move forward from there, then please drop us a line and see about bringing a Christian civic speaker to your church or your campus or your ministry. 
we offer both short classes and longer workshops, uh, as well as special seminars meant just for pastors or ministry leaders. So whether you want us to address your whole congregation or just your leadership, we have talks and classes that are probably going to be the right fit. If you want to learn more about partnering with us to bring one of these events to your community, visit christiancivics.org contact and drop us a line. If you want to meet some members of our team in person, we'll be tabling at the Gospel Coalition Regional Conference at Stonehill Church in Princeton, New Jersey on October 13th and 14th. The event has some great speakers lined up, and so it would be a great opportunity for you to come start working through some big ideas with some other people and share with us either what we've been doing that's encouraging and exciting to you or where you think you'd like to hear more from us in different ways. Other Christian Civics team members and I will be on site the whole time, and we'd really love to meet you. Lastly, and this is a big one, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area, then go to our website right now and sign up for Q Commons on October 26th. We're partnering with Q Ideas to bring two hours of teaching and conversation to Washington, D.C. that's going to be all about what it means to bring healing to our divided nation. This event is going to feature a combination of local and national speakers, including David Brooks, who's going to be talking about cultivating virtue, artist and activist Propaganda, who's going to be talking about diagnosing our complicated cultural moment, and pastor and sociologist Dr. Richard Smith, who's going to be talking about models available to Christians for responding to injustice. He's someone who's been on our podcast before. I like him a lot. I'm really excited that he's agreed to come out and be part of this event. We're also going to have three other talks, including a panel discussion with people in the media talking about truth, spin, and media literacy. This event's going to be held in the heart of Washington, D.C. at 7 p.m. on October 26th, and we're really excited to be planning and hosting it. We'll have more information each week as the event gets closer, but you should get your tickets today at christiancivics.org slash q. That's just the letter Q. Space is limited, so be sure to get your ticket as soon as you can. Now, please join me as we move into prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the perfect God. You are the one who isn't marred by brokenness or sin. You see all and you understand all, and you order all. You didn't make a mistake when you put us in this country at this time. Any power we have, you gave us. Any service we render, you enabled us to give. Any wrongs we see, you showed to us. And any responsibilities we shoulder, you entrusted us with. From the calling of Abraham to the commissioning of the apostles, you've said over and over again through your words, your prophets, and your son that you plan on blessing people so that through them others can be blessed. 
You make people great, not for our own benefit, but so that we can fulfill your image by being a benefit to others. That is the bent of your heart, the shape of your character, and the image of your son. We carry his name in this confusing time, and we want to bring honor and glory to it by our conduct and actions. As we work out what to do with our civic responsibilities, we ask you to shore up our hearts against fatigue, against self-interest, against short-sightedness. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand, especially at times when we don't want to. Help us to be judicious, generous, gracious and righteous citizens, life-giving forces to the communities around us. When your kingdom comes, let it be filled with people who say that they got their first real glimpse of it from the way that their Christian neighbors handled their citizenship differently from their non-Christian neighbors. More carefully, more joyfully, as a service to our Lord, who sacrificed himself for the sake of securing our place in that coming community. It is in that great and wonderful Lord's name that we pray. Amen. All right, that's it for this episode. I want to say a few quick thank yous. Thank you to Kelly and Nathan at the Boston Fellows Program for bringing the Center for Christian Civics in for one of our classes. That was actually where this particular class recording came from. We can't continue this work without the support of you, our listeners. So please visit us at christiancivics.org to make a one-time or recurring donation today. If you do, if you make a donation of any size, you'll get a special bonus episode of this podcast when it drops in October. I mentioned the culture war paradigm at the top of this podcast. If you want to learn more about what that is and learn more about um, how we think it might be helpful for Christians to respond to it, then visit our website, christiancivics.org, and take a look at the show notes for this episode. We'll have a link to a little bit more um, information on that there. Our theme music is by Sonic Weapon Fence. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back in about two weeks.